0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. Some comments challenging believers to examine our concept of God. J.D. Greer of Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina brings insight. Then you'll meet Donya Greenberg of the Tree of Life Bible Society, who has provided leadership in crafting a study Bible that examines the Jewish roots to God's Word. Plus, author Lee Heiss of Moms in Prayer International provides help for mothers who are trying to raise courageous, even heroic children in accordance with the Scriptures. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, filmmaker John Irwin is back to discuss the movie that premieres March 16th based on the story of the lead singer of the band Mercy Me, and how he came to write one of the classic Christian songs of all time. Also a discussion of one element of the proposed federal budget for the next fiscal year, a White House proposal to prevent taxpayer dollars from being used to fund the nation's largest abortion provider. Carrie Gordon Earl of Focus on the Family will have some analysis. Finally, from First Liberty Institute, Michael Barry brings news concerning a Ten Commandments monument in New Mexico that was challenged and a Martin Luther King Jr. Day event that also met opposition due to religious content. This is The Intersection, of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. J.D. Greer is the pastor of the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and spoke with me recently, sharing principles relative to his book, Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. From that conversation, this is J.D. Greer.
1: So the idea is that basically... um, Most of our spiritual problems, if you trace them back, they're going to go back to a view of God that is too small, Uh, a a God that we've reduced down to a size that we can manage, predict, and control because that kind of God feels safe to us. Um, that kind of God, though, is not the God that we encounter in the Bible. That kind of God is not able to really account for all of life's mysteries. He's not able to sustain us in times of trial, give us hope in the midst of suffering, not able to satisfy us. I really wrote it. um, I've been a pastor now for, man, almost two decades. Um, And I wrote this book because uh, I noticed even after being a pastor, being a professional Christian, so to speak, and going and getting all the seminary degrees and you know, memorizing all the scripture that I just, I still had I had trouble loving God. I had, I still had a lot of doubts. And I, I just, as I was like, God, why? How come, why is it that I've learned everything and done everything and still, still find such little passion for you and still so many questions I feel like I don't know how to approach and feel at peace with? What I saw was that um, there was a, a crucial step that I had skipped in the development of my faith, and that is um, I never developed what Solomon calls the fear of God. You know, Solomon says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which means you can't really be have any greater knowledge of God or wisdom about God than you have a, a, an understanding of his size and his magnitude. Uh, I, I, I'm part of an American culture. I, I love the United States, obviously. And I'm proud to be an American, but I'm part of a, a Americanized culture that reduces, that, that, that likes to reduce God down to a size that we can— kind of kind of understand and embrace and, like I said, predict and control a God that is really just a slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of us. And that's just not a God that we find in the Bible, and it's not a God that we, we need, so to speak. Where I really, you know, began to make progress, so to speak, was when I really wrestled with the cross. Because here is where we see God at His largest, in every possible way. We see the love of God on display. You know, here I see that He loved me so much that even when I was his enemy, then, um, you know, he, he was pursuing me. It's where we see the power of God on display. I mean, if there were ever a time where it looked like God was out of control, it was when Jesus died on the cross. Yet from this perspective, you and I realize that there was never a time when he was more in control because it was there that he was doing his best work. Well, the same is true in my life when I go through something difficult. I, I'm sure it's not it's not because God has lost love for me. The cross proved that. I'm sure it's also not because God um, has—I'm uh, sure it's not because he's lost control, because just like he was doing his best work at the cross, he's probably doing his best work in me and in, in some of my dark hours as well. And so there at the cross is where I really began to understand the, the size and the beauty of God, and it became not a threat to me. It became— A source of um inexplainable comfort to me and i think that's where that's where you as a listener you know if you're listening um right now it's where you'll find this journey begin go to the cross because that's where that's where it all that's where it all
0: starts jd greer here on the intersection find out more by visiting the website jd greer g-r-e-e-a-r.com next up it's donya greenberg president of the tree of life bible society as well as visionary and founder of the Tree of Life Version Bible. In our conversation, she discussed its dedication to presenting a Jewish approach to the scriptures. The conversation took place after the release of the TLV personal size giant print reference Bible. Here's Danya Greenberg now.
2: I think I wanted to bring the miracle of Yeshua arriving, of Jesus arriving. Yeshua and Jesus is the same word. Jesus is it in the Greek and Yeshua is it in the Hebrew. They both mean salvation. And, and when we wanted to do this Bible, listen, I was married to a Jewish guy. I had little Jewish kids, and they believed in Jesus. And 25 years ago, that wasn't so popular. It's real popular now, but it wasn't popular then. And so my husband would be teaching from the Bible, um, you know, at services on Saturdays. We have services Saturday morning, um, just like Christians have it Sunday morning. And when he was talking about Jesus, my little kids would look in their Bible, and it would say, Jesus, when my husband was saying the word Yeshua. So I didn't want my kids to get confused. So I started asking folks, don't you think we need a Bible that little Jewish believing kids can read that says Yeshua instead of Jesus? They're both great names, but if you're going to say Yeshua in the service, the kids should know who you're talking about. So that's what started the process. And then the Jewish order of the books came about, which led me on this really cool journey of figuring out why it is that the Jews of Jesus' time, some recognized him and some didn't.
0: Tell me what you discovered as far as, when, you know, when Jesus, obviously when Jesus was teaching, why, why was there that difference?
2: Well, because they're looking for a Messiah that would come and overthrow the, the leadership around them. They wanted to have the freedom that they thought they were going to get at the, at the rebellion with Judah Maccabee, like most Christians know about um, Christmas. But a lot of Christians don't know that the Hanukkah story, which is the Jews getting their temple back so they can worship God, was only about 160 years before Messiah came. So if you knew that, they, that the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New, actually is the end of Chronicles. At the end of Malachi is mm. the prophet that you need to know about, but the Jewish history ends in Second Chronicles. So when you put the order of the books back, you start to realize that the Jewish people, so many times they were, um, they were on their way toward the promised land, and then there was a, a, a revolution that happened around them, and they needed to find a way home. And really, that's all the Jews are looking for, is to find their way back to God. And when you follow it in the story of the Old Testament, it's so fascinating to see how easily they could have missed it. They, they didn't know God was going to come in the form of a baby. They thought that there was going to be a king that would come and overthrow Rome. So when you see how close those two events are to each other, it, it really is fascinating.
0: So tell me just a bit about the nuts and bolts as far as the the translation, who participated in it, and how was it all put together?
2: Well, we had uh, 32 PhDs. Um, The guys that got saved, the Jewish people that um, came to faith, there was a a large amount of Jews that started coming to the Lord back in the Jesus movement back in the 60s. That's when, you know, Jews for Jesus started and chosen people started. And there was a lot of Jewish missions, missions to Jewish people started around then. And the Jewish people were returning to um, their homeland. And, And that always goes hand in hand with them returning to the Torah, them returning to the Bible. So, those guys grew up, right? They've been, it's now, now we're in you know, 2017, and, and those guys are not only grown men, but, but great Bible scholars. So, when we got together to form a team to create the Bible translation, our Christian friends jumped on board, and everybody decided, you know what, it's time to show the Hebrew lens of the New Testament.
0: Donya Greenberg here on The Intersection. Find out more at tlvbiblesociety.org. I had the chance recently to talk with Lee Neen Heiss, a communications specialist for Moms in Prayer International and author of the book, Brave Moms, Brave Kids, A Battle Plan for Raising Heroes. In our conversation, she shared insight from others into raising brave and heroic children. Here now is Lee Neen Heiss. God
3: wants us to trust him. When I was studying for the book, I was looking for the word surrender because that's what our Christian culture right now says. You need to surrender this fear. What I found is that the Bible really doesn't use the word surrender towards God, as in what man does towards God. Actually, I mean, the idea is there, of course, but the word that it uses in trust instead is the word in trust. He asks us to entrust our kids to Him. That means that we give faith. We place something into His hands because He's so much more worthy and able to protect them than we are. And I find that to be the key that turns the lock on my fear is that when I realize He is the only one that can perfectly protect, defend, and equip them to walk in this world today. That's what I'm going to do. I can't surrender. I can't walk away and the fight be out of me. God put that mama bear instinct inside of me, but I can reassign that role that I'm fighting for control over in their life to him and know He will never leave them or forsake them. He will be their strong defender and defense. He will help them walk through anything he calls them to. And so I can't let go of my fight inside of him, but I can entrust them instead into his loving hand. And I think that's more than a word semantics. For me, recognizing that this was a trust issue for me um, was everything.
0: Lee, talk about what you see as the connection between being brave as a mom and really teaching kids how to be brave.
3: We have to get to the bottom of everything that we're going to teach them. We have to understand the why behind it. And so I had chosen seven things that I really felt like were core issues that God was teaching me to equip my kids, but I realized I had to understand the why behind those. So example For example, I want to teach my kids to pray and to intercede for others and for themselves, but I need to know why God calls us to do that in the first place, or I need to understand the why behind service. And so myself asking the question, why does he want us to serve others, and what exactly would that look like? And so I think understanding the why behind each that we're asking our kids to do, and then living that out, modeling that in our own lives is everything. So, for example, when I was studying why we're going to teach them to serve, I found that serve asks the question, if I were in their circumstance, what would I need? What would I want people to do for me? And I think that enables us to uh, look out for the needs that other people have in of our own needs first. It, it helps kids begin to identify the why behind doing those things, and actually the practical how-tos as
0: well. How do you as a parent keep from maybe trying to intervene when a child is facing some some difficulties, or I should say maybe intervene inappropriately?
3: Before we rush in, we pray. We ask the Heavenly Father the wisdom that He promises to give us generously and without finding fault. And then we see Him as the answer to every need and trial that we face, that they face, that we face. And we point Him towards them. My goal is to attach my children as much as possible to the Heavenly Father. And I am to be a conduit them towards him and so my job is to continually show my kids that God is relevant in the trials that they face today and to keep pointing them towards him and I need to seek that wisdom when they need wisdom from me then I need to say Heavenly Father how would you like me to lead them in this situation I trust them you know my natural instinct is to automatically fix it when really I can miss a growth opportunity when I steal that I steal the fix it scenario mm-hmm. and, and and make that my job instead of making that the Heavenly Father's job. Now that doesn't mean that I don't address my problems or my kids problems. Of course I do as a mother. I try to help fix it, but boy, I can't press the escape hatch every single time they face a trial.
0: Lee Neen Heiss here on the intersection, you can find out more by going to the website Brave Moms, Brave Kids Dot com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit, you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter or access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also connect to video content. Find out more at meetinghouseonline.info or go to faithradio.org and check out the programming section. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Well, next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's filmmaker John Irwin who shared about the concept and certain elements of the film I Can Only Imagine based on the true story of Mercy Me lead singer Bart Millard and his composing of the classic Christian song for which the film is named. Here now is John Irwin.
4: What an amazing story. Mm. I mean, first of all, I mean, just hearing the story uh, was amazing, you know? I mean, what in the world? And just... uh, understanding that this really happened, you know, uh, and, and this incredible, um, redemption of this relationship that led to one of the most popular, uh, the best-selling most played Christian song of all time. Uh, that blew me away and, uh, how in the world has this not been made, uh, yet, you know, and that's, uh, and yet, uh, here we are and, and, uh, you know, making the story and that's, uh, you know that's that's an amazing thing. So, uh, so it was it was a incredible story to be able to tell, and uh, and we're honored to be the ones that got to uh, tell it. And and uh, and you know I remember vividly uh, getting with Bart and saying, hey Bart, if I were to literally put a gun to your head and say, is God real? What do you say? And he said, absolutely. And I said, how do you know? And he said, because of the change I saw in my dad, and without hesitation said, because of the change I saw my dad, I watched the monster transform into my best friend and the man I wanted to become. And there's just no other explanation for it. And uh, that's what I knew, man, I've got to make this movie. What a great, great story. We all know and love the song. Millions of people uh, have, have, have experienced hope and redemption through the song. Now it's the time they knew the true story that inspired the song mm-hmm. and we're honored to be able to be the ones to, to bring that story to life.
0: Well, John, if you would, just give us a bit of a summary about the, the background of this film. What is the story? Just to, just give us, not very much detail, but just the, the overall framework for this story. Well, yeah. It's, I mean, it's about uh, Bart
4: Millard, who wrote, uh, he's lead singer of, of uh, Mercy Me uh, to this day. And uh, they're just celebrating uh, winning artist of the year and songwriter of the year. And, and uh, <laughs> we congratulate them for that. But it's, it's the origin story. of of this breakout hit, I Can Only Imagine, which um, was destined to become the most popular, best-selling, most played Christian song of all time. And Bart, uh, talk about an underdog. Uh, Bart was a a kid from Texas with a terrible relationship with his dad. His mom mom left at an early age. And um, he was left in a very uh, tough relationship with his dad. And uh, he was trying to be a football player because he thought that's what his dad wanted. And lo and behold, um, he broke both ankles in one game. And, uh, and, or one practice and he had to take an elective just so he would graduate. And the only one available was the glee club. And so he uh, joined the glee club and come to find out, he found his gift. He found out that he had this incredible voice, but that put him at further odds with his dad as he pursued a a career in music. And his dad didn't believe it. And when his dad who's played so well by Dennis Quaid found out he had cancer, he woke him up. He became a Christian and his dying wish was to reconcile to his son. And it was the power of that reconciliation that in, that inspired um, uh, I Can Only Imagine. Mm-hmm. So I Can Only Imagine is a song about heaven, but Bart is singing for his dad. And nobody knows that. And so it was an honor to to, to be able to get, the, get to be the ones to tell that story. We, we, we sense incredible momentum. The trailers have been seen over 60 million times wow. and shared over a million times on Facebook, which is staggering. I mean, it's far beyond anything that we've ever done. Um, and I think a record for a faith film. So uh, I think that's just a testament to the song. And it just shows how many fans there are of this incredible song. And so we're just honored to to be the ones that uh, uh, that have gotten to tell this story and look forward to everyone seeing the movie on March 16th. It's 316 is our release date. Oh, wow. <laughs> I wish I could say we planned it, but I uh, but, uh, didn't realize it until after we'd chosen it. But, you know, 316 is an important... Uh, reminder uh, uh, for Christians of God's love and uh, and of his forgiveness. And uh, and so we look forward to, to everyone seeing the movie on March 16th.
0: John Irwin here on The Intersection. Find out more about the movie by going to ICanOnlyImagine.com. Well, this is The Intersection podcast with Carrie Gordon Earl, Vice President of Government and Public Policy for Focus on the Family, In a recent conversation, she discussed the proposed budget submitted to Congress by the White House, which included a defunding of Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider. Here now is Carrie Gordon-Earl.
5: This is the proposal from the White House. So this is what President Trump is sending. Uh, to members of Congress to say, this is where I'd like to go. So this is his wish list, if you will. If you look at what presidents ask for and what they get at the end of that <laughs> yes. uh, budget process, ah, that's, that's sometimes two different things. But the, the one thing that really sticks out to us here at Focus on the Family is, once again, uh, we see President Trump in his budget wanting to defund Planned Parenthood, and he has said from day one during the campaign that that was one of his goals would be to do it, and his budget, his last budget for for uh, 2018 also included a defunding of that. So um, it's it's important in the sense that we do have a pro-life White House, and I will um, mimic my boss, Jim Daly, our president here at Focus on the Family, who says there are two different... President Trump's. There's the more bombastic tweeting one that can sometimes make you cringe, sometimes make you laugh. But then there's the executive. And from where we sit here at Focus on the Family, We're looking at the policies. We will criticize people if it needs to be said on either side of the political aisle. But the the Trump White House, with Vice President Mike Pence in the mix there, has been very pro-life. And that's what we're seeing with this budget, is an attempt, again, to get Congress to stop giving our tax dollars to the number one seller of abortion in the nation. And for that, we applaud, and we will continue to uh, assist in that goal any way we can.
0: Well, Carrie, I'm going to ask one of these big questions. When we think about our tax dollars being used to fund the taking of human life through abortion, why are we even having this discussion? Why is it even in the the government uh, a, a governmental function to actually fund abortion?
5: Well, it's it's a little complicated, and we talked sure. uh, before the interview about some aspects of that. When when public monies go to Planned Parenthood they do not go for abortion directly the Hyde Amendment and other protocols and policies prevent Planned Parenthood from technically using tax dollars for abortion however money is fungible and once it gets into their budget and inside their organization there's no way to know how that money is really used it may pay for the room or the lights or the abortionist but technically it's not supposed to be used for abortion except under the Hyde Amendment uh, for, for Medicaid if the abortion was due to rape, incest, or life of the mother. Um, so what we have here is Planned Parenthood taking other types of money, and that would be through uh, the Health and Human Services budget of Medicaid and Title X family planning. And what this policy would do if it were put into law would be to say you can't have that money anymore. We want that money to be reallocated uh, to groups that fund and take care of women's health issues, but don't do abortions.
0: The fact of the matter is that there are plenty of places out there where women can go for quality health care, better health care that they can receive from Planned Parenthood, and you don't have to worry about that money going for abortion.
5: There, there are services there, and certainly we can do a better job of that and if the 500, now, and get this number, more than $500 million a year of our tax dollars was not going to Planned Parenthood, and what in reallocation to other organizations, we would see those organizations growing and expanding and beefing up their services. If we have a deficit in this nation of alternative services for true women's health, to Planned Parenthood. In large part, it's because we're giving half a a billion dollars a year to Planned Parenthood. Let's get that money where it can really work for women without having abortion attached. The the other thing about Planned Parenthood, Bob, is when you look at the numbers, when you look at their annual reports, they're just not doing a good job. They are a failing business. If you look at their business model, they're using our tax dollars to foot the bill. So we we actually went back and looked at it and what's happened is They are taking more of our tax dollars, but they're reaching fewer women in in recent years. Their president, Cecile Richards, has announced recently she's stepping down, and that's what's happened under her tenure, is that we've seen them take in more and more of our tax dollars, more and more federal money, but actually reaching fewer women and having fewer clients. So that tells us there's something wrong with their business model. So even if you look at this practically from a business standpoint, apart from the fact that this organization should not be getting our tax dollars, we can do this better. We can do this mm. smarter. And I think that money going to other organizations is going to beef them up, help them to expand, and we can really build a network to truly help women without having abortion attached.
0: Carrie Gordon Earl here on The Intersection. You can learn more at the Focus website at focusonthefamily.com. Michael Berry is Deputy General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. In a recent conversation, he provided an update on several legal cases, including challenges to a Ten Commandments Monument and the religious content of a Martin Luther King Junior Day event in New Mexico. From that conversation, this is Mike Berry.
6: Well, when you know, we saw that the, the FFRF, which you know has this, this pattern and history of, of kind of bullying uh, cities and, and towns and communities across the country. Uh, by sending out these threatening, you know, letters, thre- threatening to, to file lawsuits, which they very rarely do, by the way, uh, but you know, over over some alleged constitutional violation. In this case, just as you said, the, f- the mere fact that they have a Ten Commandments monument on government property, uh, the FFR somehow thinks that that violates the Constitution. Oh, by the way, uh, the Ten Commandments also is inscribed in in the uh, inside the United States Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court itself has upheld the constitutionality of Ten Commandments, and, and federal courts have upheld Ten Commandments monuments all over the country. So, but somehow that escaped the FFRF, and they sent this this threatening letter to Hobbs New Mexico. And uh, you know, First Liberty Institute, we're actually the largest legal organization in the country that's dedicated to defending religious liberty, uh, and that's all we do is religious liberty cases. So when I saw that, I, I just couldn't help but Respond and so I sent a letter to the to Hobbs, New Mexico, telling them the, all the reasons why the FFRF was wrong on the law, and and really that they need not take any action and that they shouldn't take any action because any action to remove a Ten Commandments monument might actually demonstrate hostility to religion, which is also viol- uh, uh, prohibited by the Constitution. So uh, and then on on the Martin Luther King deal. I, you know, to me, that was just a bridge too far. I thought that that was actually uh, highly offensive and inappropriate that they would uh, attack the city for simply allowing a, a celebration of, as you said, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., um, which the city held on his birthday, which is a federal holiday. And it actually made me wonder if the FFRF would have, if they had been around at the time, would they have sent a letter to the Department of the Interior for allowing Dr. King himself to give his I Have a Dream speech from the National Mall? Because he certainly mm-hmm. invoked religious references during that speech. So it makes good me wonder point. if they would have tried to stop him.
0: Very good point. So any response to the letter from the kind people of Hobbs, New Mexico?
6: No, uh, you know, no no formal response other than, you know, thank you. You know, we received your letter. We're looking into this and. In. You know, I'm hopeful uh, and I would even say optimistic that Hobbs, New Mexico will kind of uh, uh, take a cue from from other cities and and towns across the country that have basically ignored the FFRF. When they get one of these demand letters, uh, the best thing they can do is just wad it up and throw it in the trash or maybe put it in a filing cabinet somewhere. But really, you know, as I often uh, teach my kids when we go to national parks, don't feed the wildlife because then the wildlife – learns that they can come back to you for more food. Well, that's what the FFRF does, is when you begin to engage with them and respond to them, now they think, you know, oh, you know, wow, there's somebody there. We can actually uh, harass them
0: some more. Mike Berry from First Liberty here on The Intersection. The website is first, spell it out, firstliberty.org. Well, we are nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more at meetinghouseonline.info or visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you can connect to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is also available through the Faith Radio app. Through the Meeting House homepage, you can also connect to two blogs, the three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, as well as the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or visit faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.